Today's scripture reading will be from Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. I will be reading from the New King James Version, Genesis 3, chapters 13 through 15. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. In your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You may be seated. God is good all the time. I want you to keep at the forefront of your mind uh, one, one idea. Maybe not so much an idea as much as a reality or a belief, and that is God has a plan. The doctor calls with bad news. I'm sorry, it's cancer and there's nothing we can do. God has a plan. Your spouse tells you after decades of marriage they want a divorce. God has a plan. Your boss calls and says, we've decided to let you go. But God has a plan. One of your children moves out after a disagreement or an argument, and they live with their boyfriend slash girlfriend, whichever it may be. But God has a plan. Your best friend decides that they no longer need you, and so they're not returning calls or even emails. God has a plan. Your job search has led to a dead end, and now you're out of money and out of leads. But God has a plan. You've prayed for one, if not several, of your children to return to the Lord, but they seem to have only hardened their heart even more. God has a plan. Your spouse, or maybe a parent, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. God has a plan. Oftentimes the things that really unsettle us are things that we hadn't planned for. This wasn't a part of the plan that we had for our lives. I want to read to you a passage from one of the Psalms. I just want you to listen. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book were all written the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139, verse 16. You see, the things that unsettle you and me are no surprise to God. They surprise us, they upset us, they rock our world, but it wasn't something that caught our Father off guard. He's not surprised by it. We are. We're upset by it. So in that moment, what do we do? Sometimes turning to God may be the farthest thing from our minds. But it ought to be the first. God knows what lies ahead even though we don't. And because of that, we should always turn to Him asking for guidance and trusting in His plan, whatever it may be. And here's the one thing that you're going to learn if you haven't learned it already. God's plan, as Vernon read the passage from Isaiah 55 this morning, God's plan isn't always my plan. And here's what's really no fun. His timing is not my timing. 
And I don't like that, right? I want it my way on my timeline. But that's not how it works. Now, when I was in the third grade, I remember this because of how traumatic it was. When I was in the third grade, I was feeling pretty poorly and, and just wanted to sleep. And it was at school, so the school called my mother and mom came and picked me up. I had a fever, sure enough. It was on a Friday, I remember that, and I'll tell you why I remember that. She took me to the doctor in urgent care in uh, Nashville. And I had strep throat. And I'd been sitting in my mom's lap the whole time, and then they, they said they're going to have to give me a shot. I don't like getting shot, especially as a third grader. And of all the places, they backside. And it took three or four of those nurses to hold me down, and I was screaming like maybe that's how my lungs are so good now because I screamed a whole lot that day. And I came out crying. They had asked Mom to leave the room. Now, I didn't like it one bit, but the, 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 the pain and the anguish was meant for something good, meant to improve my health. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every bad thing that happens has a purpose, because I don't believe that. I think sometimes bad things happen because we live in a world that has fallen into sin and decay, and because humanity is selfish, we want what we want, and we want it yesterday. I want my own happiness, and now I can define that happiness. I don't need you to define it. And many say they certainly don't need God to define it. They can do it on their own. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a world ridden with sin. And I'm not going to pretend that I haven't contributed to it in the least because God knows that isn't the case. In Genesis chapter 3, despite their own failings, and I love how sometimes we study this, because we like to point out that they had the perfect relationship with God the Father, Adam and Eve. They had the perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. They had the perfect setup, and yet they still managed to blow it. And we say that as if had it been us, we would have never done it. But it just goes to show the reality of humanity, and that is we always want more than what we have. We do not know how to be content. Adam and Eve, uh, rather Eve as she was speaking to the serpent, as the serpent was speaking to her, asked the question, has God really said? And she says, yes, God says that in the day that we eat of it, we shall die. And the serpent says, you won't die. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll become like him. And who among us doesn't want to be a God? And so this is why they went forward, both of them, and, and ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, some people say apple. We don't know that it was an apple. The Bible doesn't specify. But all the Renaissance paintings depict it as it was an apple. Whatever. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and you might think at this point, all hope is lost. The unthinkable has been done. We've been expelled from the garden. There's no coming back from this. But even in the midst of what they did, God had a plan. And a part of that plan you see reflected in verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So despite Adam and Eve's iniquity, God had a plan despite how great they had it. Now that they're cast out, 
there's one thing that hasn't changed, and that is how much God cares for them and loves them. And what he wants more than anything with humanity is to have the closeness, the relationship that we had in Eden. Follow me through the scriptures, if you will. So you have the perfect conditions, the perfect place, man's sins cast out. Then what does God do? He creates a microcosm, a, a small earth within all the earth called Israel. And a lot of times we look at the law and we go, man, that's an awful lot of commandments. And, and it is, 613 commandments, one rabbi counted. And we go, that's a lot. And we go, boy, God, whew, that's a lot to live up to. But God is showing Israel, if I'm to live among you and you are to live in my presence, this is how it has to be. This is how you dwell in the presence of a holy God. But then, you fast forward, and rather than God creating this little earth within all the earth, He takes the message, the good news, and He takes it out into the earth. Rather than us having to go to Him, He comes to us in the flesh. But there are some things that you and I have to keep in mind when it comes to God. And first off, that's the holiness of God. This is a concept that we really may not appreciate as we should. Let me give you an example. When Jewish scribes would sit down and say they would copy one of the prophets or, or a portion of the law or one of the books of the law, they had an original copy, and in Hebrew you write from right to left. Many people say, well, that's backwards. Well, actually, it predates how we write, so our writing's actually backwards if you think about it. But anyway, so you'd have the original script there, and then as they were writing, whenever they came to the Hebrew name of God, we pronounce it, some of us, as Jehovah or Yahweh, the scribe would go and baptize himself, if you will, cleanse himself, then put on special garments, come back, write those four consonants in the Hebrew. Then he would go back to the baptismal pool and cleanse himself again and come back and, and then continue on his task. Every time that they would write those four consonants that were God's name, that's what they did. That is regarding God as holy. Also, nobody really knows if Jehovah or Yahweh is how you pronounce it. Because the Jews never say God's name. Because there's a commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So how do you not take it in vain? You just don't ever say it. So instead, Jews will say uh, Adonai, which means Lord, or Hashem, the name. That is regarding God as holy. Christians don't do very well at this. I'll tell you this, Muslims do better than what we do. Our Bible, we're content just to leave on a shelf or sometimes flop it down here, there, or the other. A Muslim will not allow any other book to be placed on a shelf higher than what their Quran is. And that is not inspired of God, but they believe it is. And some of us have multiple Bibles. We've never read them, and some of them are even collecting dust. When it regards the holiness of God, you look first at how it can be consuming. Nadab and Abihu are a perfect example of this. In Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2, they go and the Bible says they offer profane or strange fire on the altar. And God consumes them then and there. Some people might look at that and go, well, that's a little bit of a stretch. 
you know, why did God get so upset over that? That's the wrong question. The right question is, why did they not regard God with the reverence and holiness that they should have? That's the appropriate question. Because God's holiness can be consuming. It can also be prohibitive. There's an occasion in the book of Numbers where Moses is supposed to speak for, to the rock and command water to come forth to water the entire nation of Israel. But he gets upset and he takes his staff and he just hits the thing. God still gives water from the rock. But because he did not regard God in the eyes of the assembly, God says, you will not enter the promised land. The holiness of God can be consuming. It can be prohibitive. It can also be so powerful that our sinfulness causes us to just simply die when we encounter that holiness. Utzah is the best example of this. As the ark of the Lord is being transported from point A to point B or to Jerusalem, uh, it's being transported on an ox cart. And the ox cart goes over some rough land. And the ark of the covenant the actual throne of God here on earth. It slides, and Utzah, he, he reaches out to stop it from falling. Noble, right? I mean, that's what any of us would have thought to have done. But it wasn't in his gift to touch the Ark of the Covenant. That was reserved for the Levites alone, and even among the Levites, a special family of the Levites. But while the holiness of God can be prohibitive, it can be consuming, it can also be cleansing. Jesus was able to come to the earth and all the people that He never should have touched, because the belief was if you touch them, you become unclean. Jesus touched them. He didn't become unclean, but yet He cleansed them. Isaiah, when he sees his vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, the one realization he's brought to upon seeing the grandeur of the Lord in the throne room of heaven is his own sinfulness. Same thing with Peter. When Peter was fishing and they had fished all night and hadn't caught a thing, and Jesus says, cast out your nets. And Peter says, well, we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything. He says, but nevertheless, at your word, let it be done. So they cast the nets. Then they're pulling so many fish into the boat. And in the moment in that story, Peter says to Jesus, bowing his face, his head, and not looking at him, he said, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. This is true of me, it's true of you, it's true of all Israel. But God had a plan. And a part of his plan began as far back as 2100 B.C. when he told Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. From this single man would come an entire nation of people that still exist to this day. And through this man and his descendants, the entire earth would be blessed. Why? Because God had a plan. Numbers chapter 24, written somewhere around 1500 to 1400 B.C., I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and better, uh, excuse me, and, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So Abraham, through him, there would be a blessing. And then there's the vision of a son of Jacob, Jacob being Israel. 
And we keep on following the narrative. We get to the monarchical period in 1000 B.C. And the Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'll set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Now in the immediate context, we think, well, he's talking about Solomon. But obviously Solomon's kingdom didn't stand forever. So you fast forward ahead. Whenever the Jews were looking for the Messiah, they were looking for a son of David. That's why when you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first thing Matthew does is he gives the genealogy of Jesus. All the way back to David. All the way back to Abraham. And why? It's because God had a plan. Sin had created one set of circumstances, but God is not going to be deterred from His purpose of being with humanity. And you move on, you get to Isaiah around 740 B.C. There shall come forth a rod from the seed of Jesse, and a branch shall, uh, shall grow out of, his, uh, out of his roots. Jesse being the father of David. So we're getting narrower and narrower as to who this should be. And Jeremiah in 600 B.C., Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. The entire narrative of Scripture from the fall all the way up to the Gospels, God had a plan. And Adam and Eve may have thought, and even Israel may have thought, that our sins are so bad that we have just ruined it all. God still had a plan. He came to us through circumstances that seemed questionable. I want you to think about this. If we were to look at the good news from the lenses of not having faith, Here's what we would see, and this is probably why a lot of people rejected the Gospel in those early centuries. Because here's the story they would have heard. There was a young virgin who was betrothed, and she was pregnant, but it wasn't her betrothed. What do you think? What kind of girl just turns up pregnant out of nowhere, and it's not by the one she's supposed to marry? What do you think? What kind of girl is that? But that was a part of God's plan. Then moving on from there, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in stables. A room adjacent to a house where the animals slept. He wasn't born of an aristocratic family, but of two commoners. And you know, when he grew up, he wasn't high and mighty like the religious leaders. He, he was common. He was just like some of us. Then, rather than coming and wielding the judgment of God, what he did was he showed us the heart of the Father. And how God regards humans, even the sinful humans. And you notice that the people he was always around were the kinds of people that most folks don't want to have anything to do with. 
And the people that he avoided and that he often derided were very, very religious. That ought to say something. He was a friend of sinners, and he wasn't among the rabbinical elites. Then he takes on the anger of humanity, the frustration of humanity, the pride of humanity, the desire for power, vengeance, and willingness to kill. He subjects himself to our worst impulses. And through that, he faces a trial, a sham of a trial. And through that, he is judged, not righteously, but selfishly. And through that, he receives capital punishment. An innocent man undeserving of it. Now imagine it was Saturday, the day after Jesus was crucified, and you're one of his disciples. You might have thought as hopelessly as Adam and Eve did. Hope is lost. But what they would learn come Sunday was that God had a plan. Despite our worst efforts, despite our greatest transgressions, God has a plan. Despite the circumstances that face us in the eye and that we just cannot see any good coming from, it may be that God has a plan. His ultimate plan is to bring us all back to Himself. And He did that through His Son who came to us and died, and He died in our place. I want you to think about this country that we live in. I like it. It's a good country. Not perfect. There are some things that could be better, right? I think we could all agree on that. But she's ours. And I love her. And the measure of liberty we enjoy in this nation is because others have spilt their blood. And the liberty that we shall enjoy from sin will be only because Jesus spilt His blood. We can regard the patriot. Can you regard the Christ? God has a plan. And whatever set of circumstances there are, God has a plan. As Abraham turned everything over to God, his own will, his own thinking, everything, will you turn yours over to God as well? Many of us have. Many of us have to only a degree. God doesn't just want a piece of us. He wants all of us. And He also doesn't just want weekend visits. He wants full custody. Anybody ever grew up in a divorced family, you know a thing or two about that. Weekend visits. God wants full custody. I'll tell you that God's ultimate plan for us all is that we be saved through His Son, Jesus. And in order to be saved, first thing we have to do, and this is the first step I understand of, of uh, uh, AA programs, and that is you have to acknowledge that you have a problem. For us, the problem is sin, selfishness, pride, all these things. Okay, I have this problem. What do I do now? 
You turn to the Lord in faith. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then you confess Him as the Son of God. You be buried with Him in baptism, repenting of your sins, and you do your best to follow Him all the days of your life. And you know what? Sometimes the greatest discouragement that you will ever find in being a Christian and following Jesus will be from other Christians. Let me just go ahead and prepare you. But remember, you're serving the Lord and you will find like-minded believers who love the Lord just as you do and want to do the right thing. But remember when you're frustrated by your brothers and sisters who don't, remember that they need His grace as much as you do. They're not perfect, and guess what? Neither are you. So if you get sick and tired of church, per se, and some people do, and with good reason, I want to ask you a question. Was your faith really in God, or was it in the church? Because when your faith is in God, you understand that His bride, the church, is very important to Him. And if it's important to Him, it should be important to me too. How can we help you this morning? Is it spiritual need? Do you need to be saved? Do you need to repent? Do you just need prayers? I want you to take hope because you see how God had a plan. And God has a plan. But if we can be here for you in any way, please come forward to the front as we stand and as we sing.